This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. First one of the new year, 2021. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm great, David, in this brand new year. and uh, uh, Everything's all, all the... good now. Oh. Calendar turned. That's all we needed. Nothing. You away know from what? 2020. That's just all it was. Right there. Click. Page turn. Here we are. Brand new year. It's great. Everything's super. Uh, and then there's Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. I'm, I'm still in 2020. <laughs> You're locked I'd in. Like to, I'd like to say that it just seems amazing to me that um, in the past two decades, we've managed to get through 11 whole days of this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a year already. Uh, it's uh, you got to. You gotta be. You gotta put on your big boy pants, fellas. Let's go. Come on. Uh, it's it's not an easy life. It's not an easy world. Well, I mean, watching Alabama win again is difficult. Yeah. Well, that's true. I'm sure for you Georgia boys, that's hard to do. But we're not going to talk about Georgia yet. We're going to get there to that national championship game eventually. That that I'm, I'm thinking by now that Ohio State wishes it hadn't made the Final Four. Uh, you know, I, I I do think there's something to the fact as a fan that you. When it comes down to that, you'd rather not make it than sit there and watch your team get hammered like that and for the whole world to see your team get hammered like that, wouldn't you? I mean, I, who, who wants to make it and have that happen to you? Well, nobody wants nobody wants to go and get hammered, but everybody wants the chance to play. That's all you can ask for. And, and uh, listen, I, I thought for a while Ohio State battled back, but uh, we can get into this later if you want. I Alabama is just too good. I mean, even even as an SEC guy and, and wanting to hate Alabama, just to watch the way that team executes year in and year out, they do not make mistakes. And uh, you can hate Nick Saban all you want. You can hate the Alabama program all you want. But it is – they're fun to watch. Yeah, here, they're fun here, to watch. Here's the question that came out of that too because we just saw a dominant performance last year by LSU. How would you compare these two teams since we've seen them in a very short period of time? You know, it's interesting. I, I think there's more talent on offense on this Alabama team. Uh, I, I think it was a little more uh, – I, I think that Joe Burrow's a, a better quarterback than Mac Jones, uh, and I think that uh, – uh, that was a LSU was a little more scheme uh, that enabled them to do what they they did, and, and I think that uh, well I don't know you know I'm I'm always fascinated by LSU I, I think it's one of the few programs in the country um, that could sustain itself on its talent alone almost in Louisiana I think there I'm sure I've said this before there is more good football 
per capita in Louisiana than any other state in the country. I, I know we, we talk about Florida and California and Texas and all that, and that's all true. There's no question about that. But Louisiana is tiny, you know, and Louisiana has three national championships. or Is it three or four? Three or four national championships. You know, that's as many as Texas has. You know, that's that's phenomenal. And they get most of their players just from Louisiana. And uh, and so to do what they do year in and year out is phenomenal to me. You know, Alabama reply, you know, relies on its national recruiting base because there's just not enough players in Alabama. And and uh, and there, and as, as time goes by, what the thing that bothers me a little bit about, you know, I, I'm a I'm usually always all about dynasties. I, I like it when when teams are dominant because then you then you kind of prove yourself against that. What we wait for now is somebody who can beat Alabama. You know, then that's that's a fun thing when it's a different team every year and you don't know who's great and who's not. And then was that just a one year deal? Was, was that a was that a fluke? I, mean, I, I don't I don't like that. Um, so it, it is fun to watch that. But the, the, the problem I have with this is that I feel like it's self-perpetuating when you are this dominant. Well, then Alabama is just going to get even more players and more great players because they're going to they want to everybody's going to want to go there. Right. I mean, how Alabama of all schools became you know, wide receiver you is beyond me. How did that happen? You know, it's not like Alabama has this long history of great quarterbacks, you know, that, that that's just not it at all. But here they are I mean, every year now, the best wide receivers come out of Alabama. You know, that's just ridiculous to me, but they're going to, they're going to just get it the best players now all the time. And now uh, if, if we don't change the format of the, of the college football playoff, it'll Alabama will be one of the four, teams in the playoff uh, until Nick Saban, you know, keels over. So, uh, and maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's a, that's a good thing, but when you've got four spots and one or two or three of them are locked up every year, it, it does tend to make it a little bit, you know, redundant. And, you know, just to back up your point, Kevin, a little bit, you, you go back and look at those skill, those skill um, players from last year on the LSU team. Yeah. Burrow was a transfer and, came in from Ohio, but Justin Jefferson and Edwards Hilaire, both are Louisiana guys. You look at the skill guys on that Alabama team, none of them are from Alabama. Uh, Najee Harris from California. Um, Devontae Smith is from Louisiana. Yeah. Um, Mac Jones is from uh, Florida, and uh, Justin Waddle is from Bel Air, Texas. So, Jalen Waddle. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe they should stop. They should, they should penalize teams that don't have X, uh, X percentage of players come from the state they're in. I like it. It's like it's like well, or that, or just have a, a or just give extra credit to team that you know, like LSU, since they have. Okay, well, you get <laughs> you get extra credit toward whether or not you're one of the final four teams playing. You can yeah. do that. Well, I, I think cap. I think that the thing that happened at LSU is that the the, the Ed Orgeron effect uh, came into play this year, and they went back to being, you know, uh, what Ed usually coaches. Um, all right. Well, we uh, we got got off track here. We wanted to talk about the Cowboys. That's first. it for Ballsy today. Thank you so much. For, oh, <laughs> thanks sorry. for tuning in. Uh, we could go ahead and talk about this briefly, though, since we're still on the college track. Let's talk about the job that Steve Sarkeesian did. Uh, the offensive coordinator at Alabama, who is the, the who is now, I guess, full time on his job as the head coach at Texas. Uh, there were, uh, from what I understand, there was uh, uh, on Chris Del Conte, the Texas athletic director, 
had uh, a, a head coach in mind who had been who was a head coach and that he was more or less overruled by his uh, big time boosters who wanted a guy with connections to Alabama and everything that Alabama is doing now. And that's why Steve Sarkeesian is uh, the new head coach there to replace Tom Herman. Uh, you know, this may work out just fine for, for Texas. Um, he is certainly a, a terrific offensive coordinator. I mean, it's, it's, Yes, he has an awful lot of talent there at Alabama, but he's very creative with the things that he does. Uh, you could certainly give him credit for developing Mac Jones, who was not a big-time recruit and was uh, just considered uh, you know, a, a typical college player who is now developed into a, a probable first-round draft pick. Uh, so uh, if he can do some of that uh, at Texas, which Tom Herman was not able to do, uh, you know, Sam Ellinger, was the quarterback pretty much uh, Tom's whole time there at head coach and uh, the starting quarterback the whole time. And, and you know, Sam's a really uh, tough guy, good guy. I thought he was good enough. I thought he was good enough for Texas to, to win a Big 12 title behind uh, and compete for, uh, you know, the, the CFP. Um, not a terrific downfield passer, though, and I thought that was a, a problem for them. They, they just – Texas' biggest problem is they never had a running game until the very end uh, of, of Tom Herman's uh, tenure there. And that was just too long to go without figuring that out. Uh, if if Steve Sarkeesian can do that, if he can get their offense going uh, and be able to compete uh, with the likes of Oklahoma uh, and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 and then, of course, on a national scale as well, uh, then he has, you know, the, the – capability of being a uh you know a very successful quarterback at texas it's just that at texas it, it's not just about being a great offensive mind there's just so much going on there that you have to deal with and um and steve sarkeesian's uh, uh um, tenures at uh, at washington at usc certainly the usc ended prematurely with his dismissal uh, because of his uh, alcohol problems. Uh, he has gotten treatment for that. He feels like he's a better person for it. Uh, and we certainly applaud that. And we wish him all the best uh, in that, uh, in that realm. And I think it's possible that he is a better person because of it. Um, but it's just a lot of stuff going on at Texas. Uh, so let's go around the table here. Do we think that Sark was a good hire there or not? Evan, you first. I think he's a fine hire. Um, I, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure what what the University of Texas and its um, and its boosters expect or want. I, I guess I do know what they want. They expect to play for the national championship every year, and I just don't think that's very realistic. Um, I, changing coaches every four years. I don't think that's I don't think that's a way to build a program, but I, I I think Sark is he's a fine hire, somebody who's come out of the out of exposure to Nick Saban is is going to have some credentials. He you know he's coached the program. I I I think my biggest issue is I don't know that Tom Herman did a great job at Texas. I'm just not sure what Texas wants anymore. Well, he, listen, Tom Herman was, uh, what, he was 4-0 in, in uh, uh, bowl games at Texas. He won, I think, uh, 68% of his games. You know, 
certainly his numbers were not bad. The problem was he just he couldn't beat Oklahoma. He could beat Oklahoma, but he couldn't even when he beat him, he, then he couldn't go ahead and win a conference title. Uh, that was a thing that, that no conference titles in his in his term there at uh, at Texas. So, uh, you know, when we talk about Texas boosters want to win a national title, they, they do. They would also like to win the Big 12 occasionally. Texas, uh, Oklahoma wins it all the time. Uh, I, I don't have an issue with what Texas wants from the standpoint of excellence. I have an issue of what Texas wants in a head coach. You know, to me, that's that's the issue. They, they, they put so much on these guys uh, and demand so much of them to be so many different things. You know, that goes all the way back to Daryl Royal, uh, you know, early on in his tenure there, even after he was winning national championships. I, I think it's telling if we look at the at, at what uh, Daryl was doing back then. Uh, you know, they didn't integrate the program until until sixty nine seventy. Uh, was that because Daryl didn't want to do that? What he always said was, "We're not ready for this now. Uh, we're not ready at Texas." You know. Uh, I, I, I don't know because I've obviously I didn't get to talk to any of those people about any of that, about why that was. But I do believe there is a problem at Texas with pleasing all these disparate boosters. You got a, a, a thousand different big time boosters at Texas and they all want to be running the program at the same time time. Uh, and, and some really big guys like Red McCombs that David knows, you know, who uh, in his time was really pushing and pulling. He, he was, a, for instance, he was a huge John Gruden guy. He thought he could get John Gruden to come and coach at, at Texas. So I, I will say this. I think if you, if Texas had hired Urban Meyer, which if Urban Meyer goes to Jacksonville instead of Texas, that's a, you know, Texas fans should take that as an insult. You'd rather coach at Jacksonville than coach, you know, at, at UT. Um, if, if they had gotten Urban Meyer, everything would have been fine because people know they would have won and everybody would have just shut up. You know, we, we're going to be a big time national program and, and no one's going to be complaining about anything at this point. The problem at Texas is that you, you hire these guys on the come all the time. You know, Tom Herman, uh, you know, now Steve Sarkeesian, uh, people like that you know, who either come from smaller schools or they were, they were former assistants there at Texas. Uh, it, it, it's not a great track record. You know, you can go back 60 years other than, than Daryl Royal and Mac Brown. You know, there's been some guys who had some success here and there, but those are, they're, they're not good hires. Whereas at Oklahoma, the last two hires were both coordinators. Bob Stoops was a defensive coordinator at Florida and Lincoln Riley was the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. Both of them, Big time splashes. Why is that? Why, you know, is Joe Castiglione, the athletic director there in Oklahoma, is he just that good at seeing who's a, who's a great assistant coach? Or is it Oklahoma a place where, hey, man, we're all behind you. You know, you, you go out and do your thing, you win, and everybody here is behind you, 100%. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's the case at Texas. You know, Mac Brown has said, you know, sometimes there's people in the building who aren't for you. You know, so uh, I do think it's more difficult at Texas to win. It does require that you you hire the right guy, and it's just hard to find that. I think there's a lot of college coaches who can be successful. I think there's a handful who can win national championships. It's, it's just really difficult to do. And uh, I, I think Texas has, has not done a good job of identifying those people and then, and then hiring them and, and getting them hired. What other big-time program doesn't hire big-time established coaches to take over their program when they have the opportunity. 
And that's what exactly. Texas hasn't done. And they keep dropping, you know, they, they drop this. And this is not to disparage any of the guys, Charles Strong or, you know, Herman or any of these guys, but they get quality guys, but none of them have the stature to get the alumni to back off or the other people in the building to say, no, we're doing it my way. Because it's like, well, look, you know, you're you're young on this and I I know you're going to grow into this job, but that's not how we do it here. We do it this way. And I just don't I don't know that anyone has come in with the clout uh, to say to really establish the program the way they want to establish it. And when you don't have that power base and uh, you're having to juggle all that behind the scenes, I, I think it just dilutes your authority and and quicker, you know, sooner rather than later. And that's what's happened to all these guys and, and on Herman too, isn't, I don't have it all in front of me, but seemed to Herman, a lot of his losses came early. They were always chasing that the season was always disappointing. They would lose early and then start to win some games. And so like each year it was reinforced. Oh, you know, this year's not going to be special. They're not going to do it here. Uh, they would always wind up at the same record. They would win bowl games, but it was early season losses where you really kind of build momentum and excitement, especially on a college program where, where you think that momentum can swing and carry you more than in the pros. Uh, they, they just weren't able to do it. And those early season losses also build dissatisfaction, right? Because you feel like you've already taken yourself and it gives your fans an awful lot of time, an awful long time to bitch and moan and complain about how this season has gone wrong. And quite frankly, some of those early season losses were bad losses in which yes. they, in which they didn't look prepared. And that's the worst thing you can say, I think, about a coach. I, I, I think Texas has has so many issues. Um, uh, as Kevin has talked about on many occasions, now you've got the SEC infiltrating the state because of A&M. Um, you've got a lot of other uh, programs. Texas can't control the state. So that's an issue. I think on the on the booster side, you've got a segment of boosters who want some kind of Texas pedigree. Then you've got a segment of, of boosters who want some kind of big name coach. I look at other programs and I see that guy that the teams have gone out there and hired assistant coaches and let them be a, and, and they've developed. Bob Stoops did not have a head coaching job before he went to Oklahoma, right? Um, right. Lincoln Riley did not have a head coaching job before he went to Oklahoma. Kirby Smart, who was, you know, the last Alabama stud to go and take a, a head coaching job, did go back to his alma mater at Georgia, but he didn't have a head coaching job before he went there. Um, and, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a guy who's an assistant or who hasn't had a head coaching job. I think he's just as as capable of running the University of Texas program as anybody. But I think, Kevin, you've hit on on, on – there's too much interference in this program. There's too many factions. I, I, I think to, to try, you, you have to spend as much time trying to please boosters as you do going out and winning games and, and executing. And that's why Mac Brown had as much success as he did because Mac was great at that. You know, he was a great CEO, great at uh, pressing the flesh and, and, uh, and keeping the people happy. Mac keeps everybody happy. Uh, and that's why he was, he was born to coach that team. But, but I will say, you know, and as I pointed out uh, on multiple occasions, you go back and look at the history of Texas football coaches. They hired one big name football coach, and that was DX Bible. And that was almost a hundred years ago. 
when they did that. He'd been the head coach at LSU, Texas A&M, and Nebraska before he got to Texas. All the rest of them, even Daryl, had just been the coach at, uh, at Mississippi State in Washington, and his record was about 500 when he got the job. He basically got the job on Bear Bryant's recommendation, um, and and obviously Bear Bryant knew what he was talking about, but the rest of the guys were either assistant coach or they, you know, uh, and the really interesting thing is they keep hiring guys from basketball schools. You know, they hired <laughs> Mac Brown came from North Carolina. Herman came from Houston and uh, Charlie strong came from Louisville. So even if you, even if you were doing a good job, you, you weren't doing a good job at a big time place, you know, when, that's the, the thing about Alabama. You know, we, we all know how great Alabama is, right? And and in the in the in the poll era since 1936 of the AP poll, all the national championships have either been won by Bear Bryant or Nick Saban, and one won by Gene Stallings. So is it the school or is it those coaches? You know, I, I would tell you that it's those coaches. You know, they, right. there's a lot of bad Alabama coaches in there, but between Bear Bryant and between Nick Saban. I think those coaches play a large part of it, but Alabama has been the one program that's been able to lure big time coaches. I mean, if we go back through history and talk about, you know, in modern history and talk about the number of big time coaches who have jumped from one big time program to another, it's few and far between, right? I mean, maybe you consider Lou Holtz one, you consider Bear Bryant one, you consider uh, Nick Saban one, you consider Urban Meyer one. I, I don't know how many other coaches there are that left college football programs to go to another college football program. And now when they leave, they're going to the NFL. Well, you know, if you look, the interesting thing to me about uh, college football and over the years and the teams that have had success, the, the, the biggest uh, outlier is Miami. You know, Miami won four national championships in 18 years. Uh, and, and with, and with, you know, only one of those coaches won more than one. And that was Dennis Erickson uh, of all people, you know, Howard Schnellenberger, Jimmy Johnson, Dennis Erickson, Larry Coker. Oh, I think that's actually five national championships. You know, uh, that that's remarkable that they could do that. But, it, but what does that speak to Miami? Doesn't have any kind of history really before that they had, you know, they were, they were kind of like the university of Houston. It's a small, uh, you know, they're, they're a private school and Houston's a public school, but it's kind of a, it's an urban school with, yeah, there were some, players here players that were pretty good over the years but not any great national you know uh you know history to them at all and then all of a sudden they start winning national championships left and right you know i'm i'm not i'm not trying to imply here that maybe there were boosters involved uh but why why was it that miami all of a sudden was so great and all these head coaches came through and really other than jimmy i mean i i really liked howard schnellenberger i think he was really smart but when he was at oklahoma he didn't look so smart uh, no, I, I really think that, you know, Schnellenberger kind of came to Miami in what was considered more or less, I think he was on kind of the downside of his career. I mean, he was a great assistant, but never considered a great head coach, came to a Miami program that really didn't have anything to lose. And it was just serendipitous timing because the state of Florida was about to explode in talent. And uh, the dawn of the 1980s, there was just an amazing amount of talent starting to burst out of that, out, out of that state. And, and really, if, you know, if you ask me, a lot of what Dennis Erickson got was still based on the program that Jimmy Johnson established. And, and if you go back to Jimmy Johnson, was hiring a guy from Oklahoma State considered a big-time coach? What did Jimmy won at Oklahoma State? Nothing. 
I mean, he turned around Oklahoma State and made them viable, but but no, he hadn't won anything, and that's and that's the issue. You know, there are, there are only six current coaches who've won national championships, and let's and that leads us to Texas A and M. Look what look what Jimbo Fisher did at Florida State. You know, uh, and everybody made fun of the contract that he got from A and M, seventy five million guaranteed over ten years. That's a lot of money to guarantee a coach. He's was in his third year this year. He was this close. Getting into the, the college football playoff, their only loss to Alabama, which after last night's game between Ohio State and Alabama doesn't look so bad now. Um, so uh, I, I think that, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting question to me. Would Jimbo Fisher be a fit at Texas? I'm going to tell you right now, it, 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 no one else asked that question. Jimbo Fisher is just a good football coach. You know, he's he's – he, he feels like a mechanic. It feels like you're talking to the, to the local mechanic and he walks in, you ask him a question and, and you've interrupted him. He was, you know, in there, had his head stuck in there and he's got his, his hands out and he's wiping all the grease off. And it's like, you distracted me. What, what did you say? what do you want to know? And that's, that's what the Jimbo was like in press conferences. He just, it's like, do I have to take the time to do this? I'll, I'll do this and I'll talk for about 10 minutes, but then I got to go, man. I got to go. I got to get back under the hood here. And that's the kind of coach that Jimbo Fisher is. I, I have far more confidence in him than I had in Tom Herman and building something and, 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 and making a winner. And I think that's what he's doing at Texas A&M. I think he will have this program on the cusp of the CFP every year, or at least every other year there at Texas A&M. But I had too many people tell me over the years about different coaches. And as I wrote the other day, the prime example was Bobby Ross, who had been the coach at Georgia Tech. The year before, they had, they had shared the national championship, and Texas had uh, uh, fired uh, David McWilliams, looking for a replacement for him. And when I was working on that story and trying to get to the bottom of that, I, it was, I talked to Bobby Ross. He wanted the job at Texas. Uh, Bobby had a little bit of a lisp. You know, a little, little rough around the edges. And uh, and instead of hiring Bobby Ross, a guy who just won a national championship, Texas hired John Makovic, who, as I wrote the other day, looked like he stepped out of a Neiman Marcus ad. Uh, you know, John was very polished, had been in with the Cowboys. You know, he was the coach at Illinois. You know, he had done a good job at Illinois. They, they uh, shared a conference title one year in the Big Ten. That was all good, all well and good. But I can tell you right now, they were more impressed with the way John McAvick looked and seemed than they were Bobby Ross, who was a little rough around the edges. So what does Bobby Ross do? He goes to the, he goes to the Chargers, and he takes them to the Super Bowl three years later. Um, and meanwhile, John McAvick did nothing at Texas, you know. And, and I think that's, that's, to me, summed up the whole Texas problem, that they're always more concerned with things they shouldn't be concerned about and a, and, a, and a football coach, you know, I was told that when when Charlie Strong got hired, I was told by someone not with the Texas program, but with someone who's very familiar with the with the situation that at Texas, he's he, he, this guy told me, he said, I know both these guys. I know David Shaw and I know Charlie Strong, two blackhead coaches uh, that David Shaw, it would be perfect for Texas. That, that Charlie's just a little rough around the edges. And uh, I think it's going to be harder for him than it would be for David Shaw. Why is that? You know, now you could, uh, Charlie Strong didn't work out at Texas. He just, I don't think he was, a, a, I don't think Charlie's a great head coach. I think he's a great man. I don't think he's a great head coach. Uh, so, um, but but there all, there's always something at Texas that, that people are looking at. It's just so hard to get, 
to get to the bottom of that. You know, when when uh, there's a, a thousand examples when Fred Akers got hired. You know, when Fred Akers went away, he was Freddie Akers. When he went to Wyoming to be the head coach, he'd been the assistant at Texas. He comes back, he's Fred Akers. He's wearing three-piece suits. He'd been wearing jeans and cowboy boots before that. And when he was introduced at the press conference uh, to become the head coach, the president said, doesn't he look fine in his three-piece suit? You know, what a, what a silly thing for people to be concerned about. But everybody was tired of Daryl Royal and tired of the, the, the Willie Nelson picking and grinning stuff that was going on at Texas at the time. They wanted to be more sophisticated and be like a Pac-12 school. So it was just there's, a, there's too many things going on at Texas over the years. I think some of it has probably played out a little bit, but I think there is still an undercurrent of it. And uh, it, it, it works against Steve Sarkeesian. We'll see how he does as a head coach there uh and if he gets his sh- when he gets his shot well it's good that we were going to get to texas later um well you know you you uh, hijacked this whole thing and took it that direction but that's okay all right let's talk about what the cowboys did uh uh today or uh yesterday they hired themselves a defensive coordinator um frankly david i was a little surprised that they didn't it, it seemed like they only talked to about three people uh, that we know about. Uh, and it seemed like the first two that they talked to, to might end up being assistants uh, under the guy they hired uh, as their defensive coordinator. Tell us a little bit about the decision behind Dan Quinn. Well, the other guys they talked to still could be assistants. Uh, you know, one of them is here in George Edwards, uh, Witt, uh, who was on Quinn's staff in Atlanta. And it's uh, difficult to imagine that he will be back uh, with the Falcons. So th- that's a potential. Um, you know, there, you're going to see some more changes on this defensive staff now that Quinn's in. Um, went pretty quick, which shows you internally there had been discussions about making this move for a while. Uh, I mean, when you release Mike Nolan, your defensive coordinator, on Friday afternoon, and on Monday afternoon agreed to a three-year deal, uh, with your new defensive coordinator, who has never worked with the head coach before, uh, that tells you that the due diligence and some behind-the-scenes conversation to get uh, comfortable and, and, and make sure it was a good fit in their minds uh, was taking place back in December, uh, which is what I've been told. So, um, you know, we were hearing one of the big questions we talked about on this podcast was whether or not Mike Nolan would be back. And, Uh, We'd said for quite a while it was difficult to envision a scenario uh, where he would be back, which means internally they spent a lot of December saying, okay, you know, they're going to be head coaching openings out there. They're going to be defensive coordinators moving. They're going to be assistants moving and available. Uh, We're going to do this. Let's do it quick. Um, and, And you did. You saw the Cowboys jump ahead of all these head coaching openings. And uh, because if it would have gone on much longer, I, I think Dan Quinn with, with his resume and uh, the, the overall respect he has around the league, um, I, I would imagine he would have been courted by some other franchises here as a coordinator pretty quickly. So uh, they felt he was as good or better than any name on the market, went out, uh, struck a deal, and now – but now in the span of 11 days, they signed their offenses, offensive and defensive coordinator to three-year deals. So um, a lot of heavy lifting here that, that Dan Quinn uh, needs to do. And, uh, you know, his, his claim to defensive fame is, is running the, the Seattle defense that, that went to the Super Bowl in back-to-back years. Um, I believe Evan probably has a little bit different vision of Dan Quinn, which was that 
24 point lead in the Super Bowl that evaporated and Falcons teams. Nobody's counting, but 25, 25, excuse me. I, I didn't mean to shortchange you on your angst there. I, I apologize for that. Um, you know, and, and those Atlanta teams that he presided over weren't particularly good defensively. Now you get into the same dynamic you've had here in Dallas, where look at how much money was spent on the offensive side of the ball versus the defensive side of the ball. And, uh, uh, most of the money on off went to offense in Atlanta, just like it does here in Dallas. So uh, he, he's going to have to work through that. Although I do think this off season is going to be all defense all the time. But as we've talked about, will they get the right defensive personnel in there? Um, you know, look at what they've done in free agency defensively in recent years. Uh, very few of those players have hit and given them anything. Uh, look at the players when they have used first round picks on defensive players in the draft in recent years. How has that turned out? Uh, those those are really topics for later podcasts since we have many weeks leading up to the uh, draft, and I'm sure we'll get into that more. But, you know, Dan Quinn's going to be um, – there was certainly a level of frustration this year with um, – you know, you heard all the talk about, well, this defense was too vanilla – uh, it's, they're going to change it up. You're going to bring pressure from different places. You're going to give teams different looks. Won't be as predictable. Nolan brought that in, but, you know, I think it got away from the core identity of what, what the players here really did well and the system they had been in for, for six, seven, eight years under Marinelli. Uh, Quinn's system is going to be closer to what Rod Marinelli did uh, here and, and what Chris Richard brought uh, when he was working with Mel Marinelli than it was what we saw last year with Nolan. But it's going to be in between somewhere. It's going to, you know, you're going to try to find a happy medium if you can. But the first thing you need to do is to find some better players. Yeah, yeah I guess the, uh, the one question I've got on that for both you guys is this. I mean, does it at all feel to you like there is just – indecision on how the Cowboys approach defense. I mean, you, you had a scheme under Marinelli and Chris Richard, you changed it under Nolan and now you may go back. I, it doesn't seem like there's any continuity there. I wouldn't say, um, I, I would term it more of an offensive arrogance and a, and a lack of proper respect for defense. I, I think, I think this, franchise leans toward offense I don't think it does lean toward offense that's undeniable and in doing that I think there's a sense of um, you you take more care on the offensive side of the ball and you talk more about continuity and again to me that that's the basic thing right there when, when Mike McCarthy came in um, everyone assumed he was going to bring more of his little west coast offense elements to the offense uh, what did he say he shot that down immediately he said no uh, we're running the same scheme. Offensive continuity is important. Uh, you know, it's important. Uh, you've seen Dak's progress. We want that progress to continue. Uh, the worst thing for that would be to come in and throw a different system at him. So, you know, I'll incorporate some things on, on West Coast. All, but we're, we're going to be the same offensive scheme. What about defense? Oh, no, we're going we're to change things up there. We're going to, you know, we're going to be more multiple fronts. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to blitz from different ways. We're going to do disguise our coverages. Um, we're we're going to ramp up the defense. We're going to change the defense. But no, we're, we're not going to touch the offense. 
Well, that shows you right there that there's just this, it's embedded in the system with the Cowboys that there's a belief that, um, okay, offense requires efficiency, continuity, more sophistication of scheme and implementation. Defense, yeah, you know, we know this guy we got in the third round isn't as good as we could have gotten in the first round. But you know what? You can make up you can make up with a high motor. You can make up with want to. You can make up with desire. You can make up with attitude. And there's this minimalization of what a good defensive player is. And so when you see a good offensive player and defensive player on the board, you go, oh, well, you know, it's harder to get this good offense. But, you know, yeah, we really like that. But safety, what does safety really do for you? We'll pick up a safety in the sixth round. We'll get by. And that's what they do. They've gotten by on defense. But they haven't, they haven't drafted and spent their money to really upgrade their defense. The, the, the belief has always been, okay, and, and I will say every franchise, I think, takes on an identity, either offensive or defensive, and it's partly based on their expertise and what they want the franchise to be. As long as the Jones family runs the Cowboys, it will always be offense because of the entertainment aspect factor of that. Um, but, you know, there's a sense of, look, if we're dominant, if we're very good to dominate on offense, if we have a middle-of-the-road defense, we can get to where we want to go. And, you know, defenses, you know, defensive franchises do the same thing. If we have a dominant defense, if we can just get the middle of the road in offense, we're, we're going to get where we need to be. Uh, so that's, that's the basis of the formula. And then you get to those places and you fine tune it to, to really become elite. But um, look, the, the Cowboys defensive outlook isn't going to change or their lack of respect they have for defense isn't going to change. Now this year they will, they will spend more draft picks on it than they usually do. They will, they may spend a little more, you know, free agent dollars on it than they normally do, but do they have the expertise and do they have the continuity of program to actually maximize that? And that, and that's where you question whether they do. Now, see, here, here's my issue with the Cowboys and, and, uh, and what they do on defense. And of course we know, and, and as David said, he talked about, you know, we, we heard all about under uh, Marinelli, uh, Rod Marinelli, the, uh, the high motor, especially in the defensive line. And he wanted to rotate those guys in and out and it seemed to work fairly well. Uh, and they, they had guys who, who did uh, do that fairly well. But if you look back here, the last time the Cowboys drafted a defensive tackle in the first one. Now they, they've always drafted defensive ends. They drafted defensive ends more than just about anything else in the entire Jerry Jones era. But the last time they drafted a defensive tackle in the first round was 2005 Marcus Spears. He was actually a defensive end in college, but th there was no intention of keeping him at that position. He was going to play defensive tackle. He was the second pick in the first round that year for the Cowboys. A pretty good draft, by the way. DeMarcus Ware with the first pick. Uh, and then after that, they took also Kevin Burnett, Marion Barber III, Chris Canty. Uh, who is that? He, that was Bill Parcells, a coach who really coached both sides of the ball. Yeah. Uh, wasn't an offensive coach or a defensive coach. Was a was a true coach who want, looked to balance the team. Uh, how, how many coaches have you had balance the team since Bill Parcells? You know, uh, Wade was a defensive guy who they just turned the offense over to Garrett. Uh, Garrett was an offensive guy. Um, you know, who drafted so, uh, all offensive linemen? McCarthy is an offensive guy. Um, you know, that and look, most of the league is. Um, but I think you have to be very careful of allowing 
the attitude to seep in that, well, look, so much of play, so much of defense is just desire and want to an attitude because when you allow that to seep in too much, you minimize the differences, the 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 skill differences uh, that your scouting staff is showing you are there, and I I think that's where they've aired really defensively and uh, and and it's been, you know it's it's even more pronounced. I was looking the other day. I think they've had now, um, I think there've now been six seasons in franchise history where they've allowed more than 400 points in their 61 years. Uh, four of those six have come since 2010. Yeah. So this is a, this is a, you know, it's exacerbated now by the salary cap and, but, you know, and they, they have good high profile skill players and they consume most of the cap. And, well, that, and that's, uh, and of course, a lot of that is, and that's what the, the some of the problem with records now is that the game changes, you know, sure. and, and, and you know, you have coaches everywhere saying, and then Nick Saban says that now you can't win on defense anymore. You know, you, teams are going to score points. You just, you got to be prepared for that. You just have to come up with some stops when you can. Uh, I think there were a lot of issues with the Cowboys defense this year. For me, obviously they, they don't have. You look across the board, there are no Pro Bowl players on defense for the Cowboys this year. Demarcus Lawrence is the only high-level defensive player on that team. I think that there are guys who have potential to be pretty good. I like Trayvon Diggs, and maybe Neville Galvamore can be something. But uh, the two linebackers, you know, one of them can't stay healthy, and the other one makes a lot of tackles, but it's after he's chased somebody down. It's it's never where he's squaring somebody up. Jalen Smith, when's the last time you saw Jalen Smith stuff a, you know somebody in the hole? And that it just doesn't yeah. happen. You know, a tackle still goes down as a tackle, but a tackle made one yard beyond the line of scrimmage is it's more valuable than a tackle made eight yards from the line of scrimmage, which a exactly. lot of Jalen Smiths were. And, and very quickly, I'll say just to just to kind of illustrate the point earlier, you know, there was really no public debate or wailing or gnashing of teeth or or consternation in the organization about. Oh man, we have all these free agents last. I'm going back to last year. We have all these free agents. Uh, boy, we can't allow Byron Jones to go. How can we work this out? How can we do this? Who who is one of the league's quality corners? And it was just, it was just kind of a given in the franchise. You know, eh, we're not going to be able to pay him. He's gone. Well, why weren't? You, why wouldn't you be able to pay him? Because you inherently don't value quality defensive players at the level that you should, which is why it wasn't more of a conversation of, okay, should we really keep Byron Jones here? What can we do to keep him? How can we do this? Or head it off and sign him to an extension before he gets to the point where he goes to free, like you do all of your, you know, quality offensive players. Now they've identified some, like you said, you know, that, well, you know, DeMarcus Lawrence was after the fact. They identified Jalen Smith and got him signed early. Um, that was but, a mistake. But that's another issue. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to say, that, David, that I did wail and and gnash my teeth about Byron <laughs> Jones quite a bit. Good uh, for you. I, I think I appreciated him more than the Cowboys did. He didn't get a lot of interceptions, but you know, that's another thing about the second half of the season. We talk about, oh, look at all the turnovers the Cowboys are getting now. How many of those were balls flipped up in the air and a guy's just standing there and catches it? How many times we, guys weren't jumping routes? You know, it, it wasn't a situation where. It, it to me, uh, it's a little bit like sacks as well. They're a little bit fluky. Sometimes stuff just happens and you get a sack. Guy 
no one blocks you. You you go and you get the sack. You know, it's it's the bigger thing in on defense is pressures. How many pressures are you getting? You know, that's that's a better you know indicator of of what you're doing than is even of of sacks. And and the same thing with with interceptions and those kind of turnovers. Sometimes a guy just throws it right to you. Do do we remember Larry Brown in the Super Bowl? You know, where, where balls are getting just thrown right to him. He's just standing there, and all of a sudden there's a football in his stomach. You know, uh, and so I, I think that we can overblow some of that stuff. I, I For all the talk that Mike Nolan says now about, you know, that this team got so much better defensively in the second half, there was improvement, no doubt. But there was still way too much of people just running around back there, leaving gaps open. Who's setting the edge here? It just looked to me too much like a team that didn't understand the basic concepts of defense, and that and, and people not being uh, trustworthy to do what you just do what you're supposed to do and and quit. Uh, and we all say we want that the linebackers to be seek and destroy kind of guys who go and pursue the football. No, I I want those linebackers to be where they're supposed to be, you know. And 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 the thing that bothered me was that that Sean Lee clearly has lost a step and is not the linebacker he used to, de- to be. But even he looked lost at times last th- this season. I, I, I think that there was something wildly wrong about the concepts on defense and how they were being communicated. Uh, and I think that that is something the Cowboys have to get to the bottom of. Yeah, I, I think communication was the big issue there. And, and like I said, I, you know, the, the core of this defense, all of those guys had been in the same scheme for – however long they'd been in the league, Um, you know, so whether it was four years, six years, seven years, that is how long they had run a previous system. And when you don't have an off season, you can do it all virtually and, 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 you know, show it on a laptop all you want, but uh, football players have to get out into that. It has to be repetitive in their memory. It has to be, you know, you know, very deep in there because you're reacting and everything happens so quickly. And, and that's not a knock on them. I, it's just not, you can't learn the differences and where you need to be virtually because it's going to feel a lot different when you're there and <laughs> looking at it on a, on a screen and you're going to have a lot more to deal with. So, um, so that was unrealistic. And, you know, the other, you know, I said this going in though too, that um, yeah, the, the defense we'd seen here from the Cowboys for a long time didn't force any turnovers. And I understand the frustration of that. Uh, but also they didn't give up a lot of big plays either. No, there were very, very few big plays given up by that defense. And that was, that was a schematic trade-off that they made. You know, they went, they talked about wanting to force more turnovers, but their priority was to prevent big plays. And if you get some turnovers off of that, great. Um, you know, if you're going to force more turnovers, you're going to take more chances. If you're going to take more chances, you're probably going to give up more big plays. Now, coaches will say it doesn't have to follow those lines, but they can say that all at once. That's, that's a general statement that is true. If you take more chances defensively, unless you have outstanding talent, you're probably going to get burned a little bit more because you're leaving your defense exposed. And this defense was exposed, you know, week in and week out this past year and just gashed on the ground. I mean, it's, look, in a league that really doesn't run the ball much, certainly doesn't run it consistently anymore, teams ran all over Dallas. And, and, And even late in the season, it was surprising that some teams would start running against them 
in their three-game winning streak and then just stopped. And the question was, why would you stop? There's nothing they can do to stop you. Yeah, that was the most disheartening thing. That's the number one charge of a defense is to stop the run. You know, uh, or, you know, the deal is that they'll just keep doing it or they should. Uh, you, you, that's a good to me. The market, well, then they can offense. attack you anyway. Yeah. Then it's play action. I mean, they can attack you any way you want, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what they do here. I, I you know, I, you don't uh, just briefly about the draft. You know, if you and we'll, as David said, we'll talk about this more later. But it's a it's a top heavy draft with offensive players, uh, quarterbacks, wide receivers, even a tight end Kyle Pitts from Florida. Uh, and there's a, and because of the trends going in the league, uh, I would, I would expect that probably of that top 10 players, at least eight will be offensive players. Um, and so the Cowboys are very fortunate here. I think they should be getting one of the top two or three defensive players in the draft, uh, when they come around at 10, the problem is that there's no great defensive lineman in that group. Um, it's uh, especially on a defensive tackle. I don't even know. I've I've looked at a lot of this stuff, and there's there's a feeling there may not be a a, a really good two way. When I say a two way, a, a defensive uh, tackle who is both a good pass rusher and a good run stopper in the entire draft. You know that that's that's not a good sign for the Cowboys. Um, and these so, things go in cycles. And there was a long period where there were some dominant defensive tackles coming into this league. But you've kind of you cycled through that. The Cowboys ignored the position because they minimized that position. The two lowest graded position on defense for them have been tackle and safety, and it shows up consistently in why they're not a better defense. I mind you know I it'll be interesting that that how Quinn will, if he will impact those grades and go, well, no, that's, I mean, I, I basically give the same grade to a dominant defensive tackle that I do a a defensive end or, or a corner. So no, we need, this is what we need here. Uh, You know, those are, those talks are now underway because they, they need to set their grading system, uh, how they assess these players going in. But there's no question. And it's been the, way for years Dallas hadn't been a better defense because it doesn't have uh they've just gotten by with guys at at tackle and guys at safety (laughs) you know it's uh they use late round picks on them and uh they just make do and then when those guys uh they'll you know cycle through another fifth or sixth round during a year or two but you know this year they have three of their four starters in their secondary or free agents um you know Obviously, the defensive tackles they brought in last year didn't work. Uh, they're going to focus on defensive tackle and, and free agency and, and this draft. But like you say, there's not going to there's not a defensive tackle in the first round to be had. And I'm not sure there was is one in the second round either. Let me ask you this real quick, David. Of the, of the guys you just mentioned on uh, in the secondary, how, who do you expect that they'll retain? Uh, Jordan Lewis, Chidobe Uzier, um, and uh, and I guess Xavier Woods is also. Xavier Woods, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you can't say definitively now since you have a new coordinator and, and they'll go through and assess everything. Um, I, I would think out of that group, and, and again, if, if you get the right price, this could change. Um, Jordan Lewis might be the only one of the th- – if, if I had to put an order on him, I'd say Jordan Lewis first. Uh, 
Awuzie second and and Xavier Woods third, but I'm not sure that Awuzie or Woods will be back. And I think there's, I think there's a chance Jordan Lewis is back, but I don't know that it's a strong chance. Um, but then you're, I mean, that's that's a lot of work you need to do in the secondary. Now you can address it where you are at ten in the first round, and, and I think there's a good chance they do. Um, but that still leaves you questions at safety and. And, uh, and also corner, you need, you need a couple of, you, you really need, I mean, if you're going to let those guys go, you need a minimum of two, uh, but arguably three corners out of, uh, free agency in the draft. Yeah. I, I would expect that, the, that, that, uh, my guess would be that they'll take either Patrick Sertain, uh, the Alabama cornerback, uh, or, uh, Caleb Farley from, uh, Virginia tech, uh, the two uh, highest rated cornerbacks in the draft. One or both should be available there. I would say. Yeah, that's what I would assume. At least one, at least one would be available. And and that's a pretty, to me, that seems to be a pretty easy thing to do. You're, you're getting a a quality player. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they really like what Trayvon Diggs did and, 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 uh, and Trayvon was not rated as highly when he was in college as, uh, certain is. Um, and I think I, I really do like Diggs. I think he showed a lot of, of real skills. I thought it was really interesting what, uh, um, what Mike McCarthy said about him last year, that he had not seen a young player as good w- when the ball is in the air uh, as, uh, as Trayvon Diggs. So that, that's a real, that's a real compliment, you know, to say something like that about a guy. And it's very specific. I, I liked what he said about that. I, I, you know, he got burned on a lot of plays, but he seemed to always be in position. It wasn't like you look up and there's, there's five, you know, there were a couple of times, but it wasn't often where there was, you know, a couple of yards separation between him and the receiver. He was usually right there. So I think that they, you know, he's at least something to build on in that secondary, but boy, there's not very much there. I mean, Donovan yeah. Wilson had a good year at safety, uh, couldn't stay healthy. You have to wonder whether the guy's a big hitter like him, how, how much he can stay healthy. That's going to, that's going to be an issue I would think as well. We'll see. All right. Well, let's uh, just make just to kind of uh, wrap this up a little bit. I think we need to talk a little bit about the the COVID issues that are uh, affecting both the the stars and the Mavericks. Uh, the Mavericks have already lost a, uh, or not lost, but got a game postponed uh, because of COVID issues. Um, uh, let me ask you guys this: Do you think that the, the stars, either the stars or the Mavericks, will be able? to to play keep playing an entire season with that that is not interrupted i i think everybody is um after watching baseball send out a memo to its teams to prepare for for spring training to start on time um in the middle of this awful rollout of the vaccine i i feel like uh all the leagues are full steam ahead and they're going to be damned if they, if, if uh, they won't uh, try and play full schedules. So um, God forbid the numbers go any higher uh, around the country, but it, it, it certainly seems like sports is right now as, as much as possible, kind of just turning a deaf ear to, to it and, and moving ahead with the one exception being that most places there's no fans. David. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, in some ways, the Mavericks and Stars season has already been interrupted. I mean, you've had the, yeah. a, a game canceled for the Mavericks. You had the what the the first three games for the Stars. Um, you know, 
here's the other side of this that you really don't want you won't hear the leagues articulate but uh, say right well again right now at the moment the the mavericks have what four positive tests that we know right. of um the vaccine is available here um so you have that on the horizon but, but say you get a few more well I think a lot of teams are going to get to the point where the majority of their players have the antibodies, or then it's going to be time to, you know, they're going to be in a position to get the vaccine. I think they're, it's a, it's a numbers game in my mind is what, is what the NBA and, and the NHL are doing where, where it was different from baseball a little bit because of the larger rosters and, and certainly from football with the larger rosters where um, you get three or four on basketball you can't play that night. You get three or four on football, you isolate them and you move on, you know? And, uh, but I think these leagues are saying, well, we expect early in the season, early in these seasons, there are going to be issues and in training camp. But once we work through that, the actual numbers of, of players are going to be less that are going to get this. And, you know, it's not a very, safe or attractive message to articulate publicly but that is how this thing is going to play out in my mind which which is a different way of saying they're going to get to the end of these seasons yeah i think they'll get to the end of the seasons i think they need to take a little i, I think before it gets to, uh, too far along here and you have uh, multiple guys on teams uh, who are affected I wonder at some point, do the players say, you know, some of these players have, you know, family members living with them and they're, they're, they're concerned about, it. they're not in the bubble anymore. And, and, uh, uh I think that we, we've seen in the NBA, uh, these players uh, have really, uh, taken a much bigger role in what's going on in the league, uh, than the other, the leagues do. And, uh, it, it only takes a few of them to say, Hey, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Um, until until we get a handle on everything that's going on, I'm not I'm sitting out. I'm not playing. I could I could see that happening here in the NBA, especially if a few stars get together and say that they're going to do that. So I think it all bears watching is what's going to happen here. Uh, and uh, I, I think I don't think it would hurt to say, you know what, we're going to shut everything down for two weeks here and kind of get everything uh, under control and see what we can do about getting vaccines to some of these players. And of course that's an issue as well. Should NBA players be, you know, step to the fore and get to get this and, and cut in line in front of all the people who, who really need it. Uh, so uh, I, I think there are, are real issues here. And, and uh, this is, as we said at the very top of the podcast, 2020 has, has bled into 2021 a little too much for my good. Well, the, the league's lost so much money last year and look, they, you know, all of the discussion was that the NBA was going to start up several weeks or a month and a half later than what it actually did. But the need to make up for lost revenue to get as many games in as possible to get your Christmas day schedule in to kind of, you know, really declare that this thing is hit and make it, get it back to public consciousness again and get back on something of a, of a sports rhythm that we've all grown accustomed to in our lives. Uh, that one out in the end. And, but so now, yeah, they should have waited because a lot of these issues, if they would have waited to start the season, I don't think they would have had the issues they've had to this point. But when they determined, okay, let's go ahead and move it up and start it, then you start it, I don't think they're going to shut it down because then uh, 
in in their in their business minds that does more harm than good. I think I think they're committed to it, and now they're just getting through it. All right, fellas, I think that's going to do it for our podcast. We've been on for a little while here. We've covered a lot of ground here. We, we're all over the, the place, but that's what we do, you know. We, we cover a lot of ground in this in this uh, podcast every week. So uh, from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks for coming by, and we'll catch you next week.